Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. And welcome again to Holy Trinity this morning. I'm John, one of the pastors here. And fun to have uh, little Felix de- dedicated on a day when we're thinking about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are starting a new sermon series today called Glory to God in the Highest. And the imagery for the, the series is taken from Luke chapter Two, and we will just be meditating on the concept of the incarnation in the in the days to come. Uh, today we have a text that's really one of the most beautiful and powerful in all of literature. Um, unlike fairy tales, which are highly imaginative, this seeming fairy tale is actually told as truth. C.S. Lewis, who uh, is the apologist and the medieval literature expert, but also the the children's author in the Chronicles of Narnia, opens his book, The The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in this way. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And then Lewis begins to unpack the story of these four children, but in particular how they had been moved from London to the country, to a professor's house, and upon arrival, decided to explore the house. And uh, it was raining outside on this particular day, and so Peter says, why don't we go off and explore the house? And as they do, all four of them go through one room, and it contains, as you probably know, a wardrobe. Lucy lingers behind and decides that she's going to open the wardrobe. She does so, and two mothballs fall out as she opens the wardrobe, and then she makes her way back to the end of the wardrobe, to the back end, and she's sort of cloistered underneath these fur coats. And then as she continues on, she realizes the fur coats turn into fur trees, and then suddenly she's standing in another world. 
She feels the crunch of snow under her feet, and she looks up, and she sees snowflakes coming down upon her head. And so it is that Lewis envisions that it's possible to traverse from one world to the next, to connect two disconnected worlds. And the, the Chronicles of Narnia are the, the story and the tale of how those two worlds connect. And all throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, the question is raised over and over, what does heaven have to do with earth? Can those who are on earth reach up to heaven? Will heaven one day come down towards the earth? Is it possible for the two to one day be joined? And the answer of our passage today is yes. And is crude and as offensive as it might seem, our text tells us that the God of the universe enters the world through a womb. That the passageway of the Almighty God into the world is not some tunnel, is not some wardrobe, but is a woman who is weak and yet willing before God. And so God begins his rescue plan through the womb of a, a virgin. God flings open a window to our world. And by so doing, he opens a window of celebration. He opens a window to the kingdom. He opens a window to a savior. He opens a window of salvation as well. I'm going to call the message today the mystery of the incarnation because I want you to think at the beginning of this Advent season about the depth and the beauty of what the incarnation really is. I'm going to walk you through this passage just under four headings. And the first one I'll call the, the particularity of the incarnation. Who does God go to? That's verses 26 to 27. And then the second section I'll call verse 28 to th 33, the favor and the promise of the incarnation. What, what is it that God promises to this woman and how does he show her, his favor to her? And then uh, I just want to show you the power of the incarnation when she asks in verses 34 to 37, how can this be? How can this passageway between heaven and earth be open? And then finally, the beauty of the incarnation in verse 38, which is really her willingness and her humility. So bow with me if you would in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you today and ask that you would help us, uh, though this story is familiar, help us to see once again the beauty of the incarnation, the power of the incarnation, and what you have done for us in it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, verses 26 to 27, I'm just calling the, the particularity of the incarnation, and some people actually call it, some theologians call it the scandal of particularity. The idea that out of all of the universe, God chooses one person. And you could think of it this way, that one of the ways that God shows his love is by narrowing his love down to one person. And verses 26 to 27 are like this great telescoping of the intentions of God. Even as he did in creating Adam and Eve or calling um, Abraham or walking alongside Ruth and Naomi here, he telescopes everything down to one person, a virgin whose name is Mary. Um, 
there's an author whose name is uh, Paul Miller who wrote a great book called The Praying Life, and then he also wrote another book called A Loving Life, and in it he talks about some of the hardship that he had in his marriage. And as he's walking up the stairs with his wife one night to go to bed, she says to him on the way up the stairs, do you love me? And he says, of course I love you. She asks again, do you love me? And now he's feeling a little bit like Peter and Jesus, like, okay, what's happening here? You tested me, right? And he says, yes, I love you. And then she asks him a third time, do you really love me? And he realizes as she asks him the third time that what she's really doing is not asking for an affirmation of love, but she's actually doubting his love. And he says that it, he found that that, even though they'd been married for 20 years, it caused him to go into a 20-year exploration of what love really is. And what he eventually resolves is this. He says that love is narrowed down to particularity, that love chooses. He realized he had been distracted in his love and not focused on the one person that he ought to be focused on, that love enters into particularity. It's interesting because there's actually like 10 marks of particularity in the first two verses here. That God comes in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which is a particular time, and out of all the angels that he could have called, he calls one angel whose name is Gabriel. And then he doesn't merely love all of humanity anonymously or vaguely. He, he goes to a particular region, to a particular city, to a particular household, to a particular woman who is betrothed, to a particular virgin even, whose name is Mary. Sometimes we're ashamed of our own mundaneness. <laughs> Sometimes we're ashamed of our own particularities, the the shortcomings that we have. And yet that's the only kind of person that God knows and loves is particular people. Our minds cannot conceive of it, but God views us all with vivid particularity. The children that are born today in hospitals across Chicago at Rush or UIC, God will know the particularity of their little fingers their eyelashes, the color of their eyes. And Luke tells us that she's a virgin to alert our minds to the promise in Isaiah 7:14, behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is Christmas, God coming to the unlikely, God coming to the weak, God coming to the seemingly unknown and yet knowing their names. The womb of Mary would open the doorway for the love of God into the world. This part of what this means is it doesn't matter if you're from Moscow or Tirana or Seoul or McKinley Park, God's love can come to you, that he already knows your name. Herman Bavink, a great theologian, said the incarnation is the central fact of the entire history of the world, and then too, it was prepared before the ages and has effects throughout eternity. That's the particularity of the incarnation that God narrows his love to this one particular woman and chooses her to become the mother of God. The second thing that we see, though, is the favor and promise of the incarnation, which is startling to Mary. 
at first. Look at the greeting, verse 28. And then he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. Imagine Mary cowering before the presence of this angel. This is called the Annunciation, and artists throughout history have captured the picture of Mary and, and sometimes an angel pointing his finger at her as if to say, to her that she, in particular, is the favored one. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what, court, what kind of greeting this might be. The answer to what kind of greeting is this is, and the answer to how God chooses this greeting for her, is that God not only narrows his love to choose her, but he narrows his love to bestow his favor. That's what he's doing here, freely. The favor of God for Mary is completely undeserved, even as the love of God and the grace that he gives to us is completely undeserved. The word there for favor is our word for grace as well, that he has come to her in grace. Of course, Mary is troubled with this, and she seeks to know what this really might mean for her. Here's what the angel says, and he gives this tremendous promise here in verse 30 to 33. It says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Listen to these words. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus, of course, means Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves. A savior, a son, a ruler. He will be great, he says. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Can you see the progression that is in this passage? It starts with the womb and says that from the womb will come a son, but from the son will come a savior, and from that savior will come therefore salvation, but to the son will be given a throne. And from the throne will come a house, and from the house will come a kingdom, and from the kingdom will come an eternal rule. So from this one woman's willingness from her womb will come the ever-expansive rule of the kingdom of God. So love narrows, yes, but love also expands and blesses. The love of God chooses one woman and then says his love will go until it expands to incorporate the ends of the earth. We like to say, you know, I don't really need a ruler. I don't really need a rescuer, but pause for a moment. God is inviting you because of this one woman to enter into the exquisite and eternal kingdom of God. We say we don't need a rescuer, but do you think that you can save yourself when God comes down to this woman, it's a sign also that we cannot ever attain to coming up to him. One theologian, Thomas Torrance, says it this way, the birth of Jesus carries with it a disqualification of human capabilities and powers of approaching God. The virgin birth is the doctrine that the movement of the Son of God to become man is one-directional. From God to man, it cannot be reversed. The blessing to, to go to the world is God coming down to us. As the hymn says, let all mortal flesh keep silence. And with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descended. 
our full homage to demand. This is the beauty of the particularity and the blessing and the promise. This is, if ever a promise was pregnant with hope, this promise is pregnant with hope because in it, germinating for years have been all the promises of the New Testament wrapped into one that through this child who is born, hope will be brought to the world. Salvation will be brought to the world. God is conceiving of a child, but he's also conceiving of a kingdom. God is conceiving of a a son, but he is also conceiving of the entirety of our salvation in this moment. To include us, Christmas celebrates that kingdom comes from conception. That the favor, favor leads to a savior. God's God's rescue plan starts with this rescuer, starts with this ruler. Summarize it this way. Through the particularity, the love of God narrows. And through favor, the love of God blesses. And through the promises, then the love of God expands. Then we have to ask the question, how can this possibly be? Which is Mary's question in verse 34. Actually, that's the natural question of our skeptical age. Come on. How could this possibly be? How can it be that God could break open a door to our humanity? That God could somehow mysteriously combine or become human flesh? Mary says to the angel, verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? God narrows, God chooses, God blesses, God expands his love, but also God overshadows. God overcomes. That's what he says is how he will do this. We see this when the angel answers her and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. In one sense, Mary becomes a model of humility here for all who want to have the new birth born in them, that the Holy Spirit is the one who must do the work. Only the Son of God could accomplish our redemption, and only could Jesus do this. By the commingling of heaven and the commingling of earth through the Holy Spirit and a woman, which produces the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. The angel goes on, Behold your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And then the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. It's impossible for us to try to unify the heavens and the earth. And yet God is God of the impossible. It's impossible for us to breathe life into the universe. And yet the God who breathed life into the universe is also able to breathe life into Mary so that she will come forth with Jesus. Could not he who created the world and he who created the womb also create a savior in the womb? The incarnation's impossible. And yet God is God of the impossible. God is the God of divine possibility. You see, think of it this way. Where our abilities come to an end, God's abilities begin. What we cannot do, create a blazing sun or cast snow upon a city, God can easily do. Our impossibilities are God's possibilities. 
Again, T.F. Torrance says this, in fact, the incarnation tells us plainly that all of our efforts to go from humanity to God are useless and false. All of our efforts to join man to God are to be judged and disqualified, which is what religion tries to do. But Christ has done the impossible, and it is only now that he has done it that we can see how impossible it is for us to accomplish that from the side, this side of humanity. Our, our limitations are his expectations. Our inability is his certainty. Nothing is impossible for God. And so for an overworked and anxious people, just meditate on those words for a moment. If God is God of the impossible, it's possible that your heart heart could be softened. If God is God of the impossible, then it's possible that you could forgive someone who has sinned against you or hurt you. If a virgin can conceive, then, then it's possible that death could be defeated. If a virgin can, can, can conceive, then it's possible that forgiveness could be extended to you, that your dead heart might be made alive, that God could unlock you from the chains of pornography or sexual sin or self-hatred or despair. The, un the incarnation like spring loads this whole series of gospel events that culminates in the resurrection of Jesus' life on the earth and his teaching on the kingdom, his crucifixion upon the cross, his burial, but then also his bursting forth because that which is divine cannot ultimately stay dead. God is God of the impossible. I don't know if you've hit a wall somewhere. This doesn't mean that God will do the impossible for us. What it means is he's already done the impossible for us. He did the impossible for us. And he opens to us through her womb the wideness of the kingdom and the wideness of his love for you because of one woman and one womb. God plunged into the world to one uterus, one womb, that the, the wideness of his love might be experienced by the wideness of the world today. And so how should we respond to this? Let's respond how Mary does, because Mary models the humility that God requires to be born into our lives today. Mary models the humility needed for Christ to be born right here, right now in our lives. Mary models the humility that brings divine birth. She says, like Jesus in the garden, thy will be done, which is all God asks of us to say. This is the beauty of the incarnation, which is simply surrender. Verse 38, the impossibility of the incarnation begins with the willingness of the woman. Her weakness, her willingness, in the climax of this passage, Mary surrenders her willingness, she surrenders her womb, she surrenders her future, she surrenders her body, she surrenders her destiny, and she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. You see, this text creates the pattern of the gospel that God initiates, that God comes, that God proclaims the good news, and we receive, we surrender, 
We wave a white flag in the war zone of our rebellion. We lay down our weapons of rebellion against him. We hold up our hands to show that they are empty, and we say we receive the Spirit of God into our lives. So what do you need to lay down? What do you need to surrender? Mary's greatness comes from her humbleness, her humility. Mary's compliance is actually the mark of her character, and she is the one who shows us the way. So we, may we say we are all servants of the Lord in this season, before a majestic and triune God. Lucy stumbled onto Narnia, and Mary stumbles onto a Savior, unexpectedly. Lewis, the author, uses fiction to unlock our imagination, and Gabriel, the angel, uses the incarnation to unlock our salvation here today. God narrows his love to bless a woman, and God expands our, his love with an extraordinary promise that from her womb would come a Savior, would come our salvation, would come a kingdom, would come a rule of a benevolent, self-giving, dying king. For Christ to be, to rule the heaven and the earth, he had to be born of heaven on earth, and divinity dove into biology in this passage. Think of it. God could have come in many ways, with blazing chariots and trumpets announcing, but he came meekly and miraculously in order to show that the entrance into the kingdom would be by humility. So let's receive the beauty of the Son of God on this day who came through humility. Let this ruler, Jesus, be your rescuer, and this rescuer be your ruler. On this day, remember, God is God of the impossible, and he's done the impossibility of the incarnation through the weakness of a woman who is willing. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you on this day that this majestic story of the Annunciation doesn't start with the kings of the world, doesn't start with a priest in Jerusalem, doesn't start with the mighty, but starts with this woman who will be known as the mother of God. And even as you were born in her, as she received you, Oh, God, be born in this congregation, be born in this church, be born in our hearts, be born in this city, that on earth you might rule as in heaven. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.